This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It says something that the largest single class at Northwestern University is made up of several hundred students taking a class in Russian literature. Gary Saul Morrison, the professor in that class, is indeed an expert in Russian literature, and he is a distinguished literary critic. Professor Morrison is the Lawrence B. Duma Professor of the Arts and Humanities in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Northwestern University, where his Introduction to Russian Literature course is that most popular of electives at the university. His books and writings cover a wide range of issues, but his most important works have been considerations of the great realist novels of Russian literature. His most important recent book is entitled Anna Karenina in Our Time, Seeing More Wisely, published by Yale University Press. Professor Morrison, welcome to Thinking in Public. Professor Morrison, you have made the argument that the knowledge of Russian literature is uh, is really incredibly important for uh, for even modern Americans in 2018. Why is that so, and, and why is it particularly so related to Russian literature? Well, there, there are a number of reasons for this. Partly, they grow out of uh, the facts of Russian history. Uh, Russian history tends to the extremes, and in the 20th century, that produced you know, an entirely new form of society, which to which we gave the name totalitarian. And that was the product of the thought and actions of a particular group of intellectuals. The Russians used the ter- coined the term intelligentsia for that group, and they didn't mean uh, what we think of as intellectuals. They meant uh, politically committed, radical, socialist, atheist intellectuals, and those people took over in 1917. But their um, opponents had been the great Russian writers, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, who kept warning that their way of thinking uh, would lead to no good and formulated alternatives. And so you can see Russian history from about 1860 on as the argument between these two groups and since the intelligentsia tended to the extreme, uh, the opponents tended to come up with all sorts of interesting ideas from which we could benefit, I think, if we're going to avoid uh, the outcome that uh, was present in the Soviet Union and some other societies since. I want to uh, follow a bit later on the, those grand historical uh, uh, events that, that helps to frame this issue, but... You fill a classroom at Northwestern University with hundreds of students a year for a class in uh, in Russian literature, and uh, I, I know enough it about your teaching. Me to this day, yes. <laughs> well, I know enough about your teaching and your writing to know it, it, it is because those students uh, at, at very young ages come to understand through you that this great Russian literature speaks not only to the great uh, events of of historical background, but to the meaning of their lives. Yes, the Russians were not, uh, the Russian writers were not shy about addressing what they call the accursed questions, the ultimate questions. Uh, You know, you don't get too many English or French writers thinking they can address questions about, you know, the very meaning of life or the basis of morality directly. Uh, but the Russians 
take these questions by the throat and their characters uh, wonder about them and go through different alternatives to them. And these are the, the same questions that students realize are going to shape their own life at this point. Um, some of these questions concern things that they are thinking about every moment, um, like the nature of love, for instance, which is, let's say, the theme of Tolstoy's novel Anna Karenina and some of his other works. They, they understand the importance of that right away. Um, and so I think, you know, the reason they take these classes, one reason is they get to talk about things uh, that really touch their lives that you don't have to persuade them are important. I, I want us to look at one of your most uh, recent works, uh, indeed, on Tolstoy and Anna Karenina. And uh, I, I want to turn to that monograph in a moment. But uh, to be honest, I, one of my favorite of your writings is the introduction to Anna Karenina uh, in the uh, the Marion Schwartz edition, the translation. Uh-huh. Yeah, Marion did a wonderful translation there, too, by the way. Yes, and indeed. I, I assume if you were introducing it that you liked it. <laughs> yeah, it was it's a very good translation. You're also fairly well known as a critic of uh, of, of poor translations, uh, and, and that's important too. But I wanted to ask you about about this particular essay, uh, because you begin as later in, in your monograph uh, with that line you say is often quoted but rarely understood. The first sentence of Anna Karenina: "All happy families resemble one another. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way." And in just the next several lines, you, you pretty skillfully unpack some of the great mysteries of life and of literature from that one line. Can, can, can you unpack that a bit for us now? Well, people often quote that line without thinking, what exactly did the author mean by it? And if you look at his um, uh, other writings um, and other uh, proverbs he likes to quote, uh, it's pretty clear that what he, he has in mind things like a French proverb uh, that goes, uh, happy people have no history. And the idea is that the more drama in your life, the more intensity, high drama, uh, catastrophe, uh, the worse the life is going to be. So, the reason all happy families uh, resemble each other is that, well, there isn't, they don't have a story. And the reason um, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way is that they each have a story, and the story is different. We have a tendency to think that the more narratable our lives are, the more they would make a good movie or, or, or film uh, or, or play the better they are. But Tolstoy's point is that the worse, that's the worse they are. Um, you know, it, there's an old curse that goes, may you live in interesting times. And, you know, that's, that's a curse because what makes them interesting is things you don't want to live through. Um, but we tend not to see that. And we tend to think, oh, if only we can make our lives, you know, as intense, uh, as dramatic as possible, they'll be better. And actually, the very opposite is the case. We wind up going down all sorts of wrong paths. Uh, we miss what is really important. And what's really important are the ordinary things of life, which we tend to overlook because, well, they're not dramatic. And our eyes and our minds are set to look in the wrong place, the place that is most dramatic and noticeable, as if what is most noticeable 
is what is most important. But what's actually most important is the 100 million small events that never get into the story and which shape the whole tenor of our lives. That That's his basic point there. I want to ask uh, along these lines, if, if in his entire uh, body of work, and, and in particular in uh, in both War and Peace and, and Anna Karenina, is Tolstoy kind of deliberately subversive of, uh, of, of that idea of, uh, of life in the extremes? Uh, in other words, how, how self-conscious is he? Oh, extremely self-conscious. You know, he reveled in uh, his identity as someone who will take on all the truisms of everybody else. In fact, in his time, he was, he was called... Uh, a nietovschik, that is someone who says niet or no to what predominant opinion is at any given moment. So he, he just reveled in the fact that he was contradicting the um, intellectual consensus um, of his time. Uh, and, you know, we still have a lot of those same beliefs. The idea, it comes out of romanticism, the idea that, the, you know, the most intense life, uh, the most dramatic political events, these are the most important and the best. And he wants to say, no, they're not. And he's very conscious that uh, everybody around him assumes the opposite. And in fact, people pretty much still do. That's why the book is so shocking, even to students today. Well, I uh, I was going to come at this later, but since you mentioned it, I want to, to track on this theme right now. Uh, you make very clear that Tolstoy uh, understands love to be multifaceted and uh the ideal of romantic love to be itself extremely dangerous and uh, and and uh, kind of an acid that 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 burns away the rightful kinds of loves that uh, that really uh, are God's gift to humanity. Yes, I mean today we sometimes use the term romantic to mean simply um, sexual, as opposed to you know friendly, but that's not the sense in which he's. Um, criticizing romantic love. It's a particular type of love, which, um, well, the sort of love that you see in popular romances or going back to uh, Romeo and Juliet and you know the Shakespeare Renaissance plays, the love that we think of as consuming your whole being, as lifting you up out of the ordinary, as uh, the goal of a life, somehow destined for you, uh, that's the love that we speak of as passion. And you think of the word passion, it's related to passive. It happens to you, so you're not morally responsible for it. That's why we speak of falling in love, not jumping in love. It's somehow you have no choice. And therefore, as this ideology goes, there is no moral standard you have to live up to. You're beyond good and evil because it's not your choice at all. It just happens to you by destiny. And it's what you pursue at all costs to yourself and to anyone around you. That's the idea, you know, and that, that's the idea that, for example, Anna Karenina believes in and leaves leads her astray, and which is so much a part of popular culture, um, you know, that uh, I know my students just assume it's, it's the case. And then Tolstoy says, well, that's one kind of love. But there are other kinds, and that kind, for instance, is incompatible with ordinary, everyday family love. I, I like to have them imagine, let's say, um, imagine, you know, 
Romeo and Juliet actually get married. You know, imagine that there, that um, Mr. Montague and Mr. Capulet say, well, oh, let's stop fighting. Let's let the kids get married. And they do, right? And then it's a few years later, and here we see, imagine them now, they're at the breakfast table. You know, Romeo's there unshaven with his face in the sports pages. You know, Juliet is sort of, in bad temper making breakfast and they're both thinking where has love gone and they don't decide to have the wrong idea about love because it's incompatible with daily life um they think they chose the wrong partner and so they go off and find somebody else and that's pretty much the reason why so much of the european novel is about adultery um adultery is um transgressive it's 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 exciting it's everything that ordinary marriage and family life is not you really have to choose between those two and Anna Karenina you know gives you examples of both the other main plot the plot of Levin and Kitty shows you the development of a you know a different kind of love a, a family love which is um completely different in its in its content it, it's just as sexual as the other but it's very different in uh, in its ideals, you know. In romantic love, the idea is mystery, um, you know. So it thrives on obstacles. Whereas in family love, the the more intimate you are, the less mystery that you have, the better. The better you know the person. Um, these are completely different um, ideals of love. Sometimes one can be transformed into the other. Uh, romantic love can turn into family love, but if it doesn't, uh, it's the family is not going to be possible. In uh, your book on uh, Anna Karenina in our time, you actually end with 163 Tolstoyan conclusions. And uh, you've basically summarized this, but in 51, you write, romantic love with its cult of mystery is ultimately incompatible with marriage and family. If a family is to survive, romantic love must change into prosaic love, Otherwise, it leads to a sense that life is empty, to a feeling of having been betrayed, and to adultery. Now, you really explained the last part already, but I want to go back to that phrase, prosaic love. Uh, define that for us. I, I, I thought immediately that's a very helpful category, but, but what is it? Well, I think that you know, Tolstoy and some, some of the other Russian writers, um, Chekhov above all, are really interested in the ordinary parts of life, the, um, well, the prosaic parts, um, and an appreciation for the ordinary and the everyday uh, is what they're trying to teach, and that's the wisdom they're looking for. So prosaic love would be a love that develops and thrives in an everyday environment that doesn't look for um, extreme situations or maximal intensity um, doesn't feel like, you know, um, an addiction, uh, doesn't feel like it's amoral. Um, it is the sort of thing that makes you care about somebody and want to get to know them better on a, uh, on a daily basis. Uh, it doesn't make a great story. I mean, what are you going to say if you, you know, try to do a novel about it? Well, they didn't quarrel again today. There was no crisis again this week. It doesn't make a great story. Um, but it makes, a good life. Well, is that one argument for why so many of these uh, great Russian novels are so long? 
uh, just to take Anna Karenina, it, it's so many stories all intertwined, and you really don't get the point you are making about this prosaic love and even about moral development uh, until you start to see many of these prosaic stories unfold. And that takes hundreds of pages. Oh, yes. You know, it's a real literary problem Tolstoy is facing. Uh, if what makes a story interesting is a dramatic event, which is just what life should not be like, how do you show what life should be like? If you just describe an ordinary you know, couple without, con- without conflict, you're not going to have much of a novel. That's the poetic problem that, or I like to say prosaic problem, he, he faces. And he does it in a variety of ways. I mean, one way uh, is, a, is just to show you the wrong way to live, which provides the plot. That's basically the Anna story. But some of the other stories, the one of Dolly uh, and the one of Levin and Kitty, uh, are much less dramatic. But you learn to appreciate uh, what you can find in a world without high drama. Um, you learn to see as you know, you know Dolly um, sees small joys uh, like are they're like golden sand, the author says, that you could easily miss if you're not paying attention to them. But the things that you could easily miss uh, that you take for granted because they're so ordinary can are the things that make a life good or bad. Um, so he has to put those. They're right in front of your eyes, but you pay, you don't pay much attention to them because they're not dramatic. And the, Tolstoy's whole point is to teach you to pay attention to things that you don't naturally pay attention to. We're naturally drawn to dramatic, noticeable events. Um, they are, after all, you know, nobody publishes a newspaper that, you know, has nothing exciting about it. You know, there's an old journalistic saw that. Um, Dog bites man is not a story. Man bites dog is a story because it's so unusual. But we pay attention to things like that that are unusual. And yet the most important things in life are camouflaged by their very ordinariness. They're right in front of our eyes, but we don't see them. So the whole book is trying to get you to look at the other things. Uh, And there are all sorts of ways Tolstoy does that in the book to get you to see through the camouflage of familiarity. Is this what Tolstoy uh, means when he talks about the fallacy of the treetops, uh, the the fact that uh, we, we, we want to look, uh, or in so many uh, uh, works of literature, look and, and just act as if life is all at the treetops without missing the entire world uh, of the rest of the tree? That's an analogy he draws in an essay he wrote uh, about war and peace. Uh, and, you know, the analogy goes... Someone who saw, was looking at a distant uh, hill where only uh, treetops were visible might conclude that in that region, there's nothing but trees. But if he went there, he could see that he wouldn't even notice the trees because there could be a whole city there uh, and you barely notice the trees there. Uh, at a distance, you that's all you see. It's the most noticeable thing. And so you draw the the false conclusion from it. That, that's his analogy to what, um, in War and Peace, to how people write history. They you know, write about the most dramatic, you know, narratable events and 
you know, of what Napoleon did this and Alan Lazar Alexander did that. But really, what's mostly going on for most people is their everyday, ordinary lives, even in wartime. And in fact, what they're doing there shapes the outcome of the war in ways that don't make a good story, but are enormously effective. So he switches the perspective. I first read Anna Karenina uh, decades ago, and uh, that means I was in some sense a different person when I, when I read it and uh, then when I read it more recently and, uh, and then read your work uh, on Anna Karenina. And uh, I, I will tell you that the, the greatest change, I think, in my understanding of the story is, is due both to you, most importantly, and uh, your, your work on the text, uh, but, but also my life at, uh, in my sixth decade versus in my uh, second or third. And uh, for yeah, instance— that makes a big difference, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it, it certainly does. And uh, I, I had not noticed uh, sufficiently how Tolstoy uses words to describe incredible moral insights that I think, as a younger man, I, I, I read through as mere narrative with, with, without understanding what was going on. For instance, where Levin recognizes uh, Kitty's kind of intellectual superiority, which isn't theoretical but practical, and, uh, and on the question of death. Uh, she, she she simply knows how to help a man who's dying, and he, with all of his theoretical concentration, has not a clue. Yeah, it's it's an idea that you know it actually goes through um, the Western tradition all the way back to the ancients that there are two types of knowledge. There's you know Aristotle occurs to one of them as theoretical, and the other as practical practical wisdom. And uh, mathematics is a good example of theoretical knowledge, but um, ethics, um, or in Aristotle's uh, example, medicine, clinical medicine, these are examples of practical wisdom. And in everyday life, theoretical wisdom doesn't get you very far. That's the great mistake of intellectuals. They're very good at theory. And therefore, they think that society or individuals can be understood entirely by theory, and you can make the right decisions by theory. But in fact, what you need is practical wisdom, which may make use of theory, but can't be reduced to it. And what Levin comes to realize is that you know, his, his wife, who is not an intellectual in any normal sense of the word, understands things that he can't understand because he's only been approaching them you know, in philosophical, theoretical terms. But she is used to approaching problems in practical terms. What can I do specifically to help here? What details, not with grand theoretical generalities, what details are going on that make a difference here? That's what she's used to looking at, which he isn't. And Tolstoy is trying to teach us, well, we really need Theoretical wisdom for things that are fundamentally theoretical, but not to assume that everything is like that, as um, intellectuals tend to do. They tend to do that because, after all, that's what makes them intellectuals. You know, if uh, their sense of superiority comes from the fact that they do theory better than anybody else, uh, they've never been famous for being particularly practical. So they're not likely to see the importance of that. Well, before leaving that comment, I want to go to uh, uh, 
it's actually in page 13 of Anna Karenina in our time. And uh, I have to say, you, you have an amazing way of rendering a massive moral verdict, um, which uh, is, is without, uh, without a period, but rather with a question mark. So uh, in, in one paragraph, you write this, at the beginning of the 21st century, some thinkers have found our dominant paradigms wanting. We have, after all, just lived through the bloodiest century in human history. Perhaps, you ask, we got something wrong? Uh, oh my goodness! Uh, that 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 cannot be a paragraph written by by accident. Well, no, I mean, I, it 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 still amazes me that uh, you know intellectuals don't reflect on the kind of mistakes that they have made. Um, you would think that if any, if they were open at all to disconfirmation by experience, the horrors of the twentieth century would have made them think, but it's so easy to think that to it's something else. It's certainly not us and our theories that have made made a difference. And that's again why the Russian you know, experience is so important, because it's so clear there that it is the problems came when the intellectuals took over. Now people like Lenin and Stalin and, and Trotsky and, and, and the others who were typical members of the Russian intelligentsia and put their theories into practice that you've got um, the special horror. And yet, you know, intellectuals go right on thinking, oh, if only people followed our theories, things would be better. Uh, we could uh, uh, cure all evil overnight. And, you know, the Russian experience tells you nothing causes more evil than the attempt to eliminate evil altogether. I uh, can remember as a teenager hearing attributed to Mao uh, the uh, the statement, uh, you know, when, when the revolution was criticized that uh, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Uh, a statement's been attributed to many Marxist leaders, and I think it actually can can be traced at least back to the French Revolution. But you, you kind of turned that question in in one of your essays I read years ago. When you said that a lot of people debate, uh, you know, who said it and, and, and the, the origins, this excuse for revolution at the hands of the intellectuals. But then you brilliantly asked the question, you know, if, if indeed you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, uh, you know, after the 20th century, where's the omelet? Uh, that's an astounding question. That's the, you know, I first heard that comment by uh, a Russian emigre uh, who I was on the staff of the University of Pennsylvania when I was there, who had once been on the top Soviet economic planning condition before he emigrated. And uh, he would quote that line, well, they say you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And he, the way he put it was, I see the broken eggs. Where's the omelet? You know. Um, he had learned a great deal from trying to make communism work that it couldn't. One of the interesting realizations of a literary life is that when you read a book at one point in life and you come back to a great work later in life, it is not only as if there are two books, but in one sense, two readers. But the question is, how has the second reader grown? from the position of the first reader. What does the second reader see that that first reader did not see? 
A conversation with a reader and a writer, a critic like Gary Saul Morrison, helps us to make certain that we see more than we would otherwise see, because we're looking for more than we would otherwise look. I want to go back to a point you mentioned earlier, and uh, this takes us even deeper into Anna Karenina. And uh, and there are two specific issues I want to ask you about. And I, I think uh, your reading of Anna, you've convinced me. Oh, I'm so glad, because I haven't convinced most people. You know? Well, you, you've convinced me. And uh, you, you, you make the, the fundamental uh, judgment that people tend to misread this. And uh, you mentioned even kind of Oprah Winfrey and her interpretation of Anna Karenina, which is that Anna is a a kind of modern romantic heroine, a tragic modern romantic heroine. And you point out that to Tolstoy, she was not that at all. Yeah, she was the, I mean, you get inside her consciousness and you understand how it works and you can, you know, realize that you might be no better. So it's hard to condemn her, and yet she's wrong. Um, you, you sense that. And it's not only, you know, um, Oprah Winfrey who tends to make Anna the heroine. What really interests me is that it's very smart uh, readers and critics, some of the ones I most admire, have just assumed that that's what the novel was about, you know, Anna as the great heroine. Um, it's as if they were so blinded by the romantic myth themselves they couldn't even begin to entertain the possibility that that could be what the novel was criticizing. Uh, and that just shows how dominant the romantic myth is in our time, perhaps even more than in Tolstoy's. Because it's, not, it's some of the smartest, most interesting, sensitive critics who um, just assume, they don't even argue for it, they just assume that this, that's what the work has to be about. And that's very telling. It is indeed telling, and and uh, I, I yet when you you look at the actual novel, Anna's, uh, you know, devotion to this uh, uh, artificial romantic love that takes her into uh, a lengthy and agonizing uh, uh, adultery that uh, that leads her into a life of ever greater dishonesty and uh, and her own sense of uh, of this kind of passionate uh, fatalism. And then leads in her suicide, uh, in, eventuates with suicide in the end. I mean, it's hard for me how any sane modern reader can see that as a celebration of Anna as a model of, uh, of romantic love. But we, we, we are surrounded by people who are determined to read that, the story that way because that's what they want the story of their own lives to be. Yeah, the, the fact that you know, she um, comes to a tragic end, that's part of the romantic myth itself. It's, you know, think of how Romeo and Juliet ends, right? Uh, you know, it ends with their death. And typically, you know, the um, typically the idea is that uh, the social world that we live in is so um, so hostile to the higher things. It's so immersed in its, um, you know, uh, in its bourgeois ordinariness that and vulgarity that of course uh, the romantic hero and heroine will come to a bad end but it's all the more glorious for that i mean it's the 
secular equivalent of what it would be to be um, a religious martyr is how it's looked at. And in fact, uh, it may well be that this romantic myth gains more and more hold upon people to the extent that belief in God or religion fades. This becomes a substitute. Well, it becomes a, a matter of rereading for me, uh, Anna Karenina. I've, I, I've kind of come to my own uh, conclusion that uh, it might be Dolly, who in many ways is the uh, the the polar opposite uh, of Anna. And uh, for instance, yeah. you write about uh, Dolly, quote, her everyday goodness, her ceaseless efforts for her children, and her fundamental decency attract little attention but they are, from Tolstoy's perspective, the most meaningful possible activities. Here, as in so many other works, Tolstoy teaches us that we do not notice the really good people among us. Yes, it's really quite something. I mean, um, you know, later in his life, he, you know, when he was trying to become a kind of saintly figure himself and realizing he wasn't succeeding, he wrote a, uh, a story uh, called um, Father Sergius about a man who keeps trying to achieve saintliness and keeps failing, uh, but eventually comes across an ordinary woman who just, you know, takes care of her family, uh, takes care of her neurasthenic son-in-law who can't work, uh, tries to prevent quarrels from going on, and he realizes that. She is the saint, not he, and that nobody will ever notice it. And he comes to a very strange conclusion that um, there are indeed saints, but they're not the people recognized as saints because those people are trying to do something dramatic. It's the ordinary good people, the dollies of the world, who really make um, really make all the difference. Um, it's you know a, a Tolstoyan paradox there that you don't notice um, what is most worthy of notice. I mean, we don't even count, you know, um, you know, the work of, of good mothers in the um, gross domestic product, right? You know, if, right. if you hire somebody to take care of your children, that goes into the gross domestic product. But if you do it yourself, then it doesn't. So it, it, it's as if we value things that you pay for, but not things that you do just because they're the right things to do. Um, and that sends a message. I mean, it, one understands it from an economic perspective, but it does send a message. As a teenager at the height of the Cold War, a lot of my intellectual development, and, and, that, and that included my eventual uh, development as a theologian, was, uh, was, was grounded in that, that great contest of ideas between the West uh, and especially the Soviet bloc. And uh, the man who captivated my mind more than any other was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And uh, some of his work was beyond me when I began to read it as a teenager. But I understood what you mentioned earlier in our conversation, which is he is actually dealing with the biggest questions of life. You know, I, you, 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 I, I have a lot of admiration in, 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 uh, in his own context for someone like George Orwell. But you compare a 1984 with the works of Solzhenitsyn, and they're just dealing with life and meaning, truth at a fundamentally different level. Yeah, I mean, Orwell's book is really a great and very profound book, um, but it 
Solzhenitsyn's moral conclusions come out of not imagined but real experience, you know, of being in the gulag of uh, of the testimony of other people who were there um, that he actually lived through, and so it tends to grab you by um, by the throat. I've just been going through all his works um, uh, recently uh, myself and seeing all sorts of things I um, I didn't see there, and I mean one of the themes he keeps uh, addressing, and he also did in you know his speech at Harvard, which shocked everybody there, uh, is the idea that you know we so often take for granted that you know life is about individual happiness, about achieving the most for yourself, um, and he wants to say that's a shallow view of life, um, whether you know it's in a Soviet or a Western perspective, um, and that view doesn't survive when tested by extreme conditions, people who get you know, arrested in the Soviet Union, their whole world collapses if that's their worldview. It's only if they think that, and those are the people who will do nasty things to others just to survive. Um, but it's the ones who know that life is about something higher, um, who really believe in you know, absolute good and evil, um, have some faith that those are the only people who can withstand that pressure without their worldview collapsing or leading them to do terrible things. Um, and that you have to know by experience, you know. In the Gulag Archipelago, uh, Solzhenitsyn speaks to this directly. You summarize this uh, when you write in an essay. At some point, Solzhenitsyn explains every prisoner faces a choice. If he adheres to the view that there is only this world and that only the result counts, he will steal food from his starving fellow prisoners become an informant, and do anything, no matter how repulsive, to survive at any price. Solzhenitsyn said, this is the great fork of camp life. From this point, the roads go to the right and to the left. If you go to the right, you lose your life. And if you go to the left, you lose your conscience. That's uh, that's yeah. the very crucible of real experience you're talking about. Yes, that's right. I mean, and it, you know, it becomes the test. And I've been reading a lot of these memoirs of, you know, people who have been in the camps, including, you know, those of um, people who remained, um, you know, communists and atheists, but um, suffered a great deal and wrote their memoirs. And even they notice that the only people who you could count on not to do something awful, you know, in their own self-interest were the religious believers. And it didn't seem to matter what religion it was either. Um, uh, but they would, you know, they could be counted upon. And even some of the atheists, you know, remark upon this. We would ask ourselves, could we endure what they endured? And we realized we couldn't. You point to one of those memoirs uh, from an interrogation in the Soviet Union, and the memoirs from 1967. And uh, right. she was being really uh, pressured, the memoirist here, to uh, to denounce someone else who had already denounced her. And uh, she had said to the interrogator, that's between him and his conscience. The interrogator then said, what are you, a gospel Christian or something? And uh, and it's because in their Marxist-Leninist materialist worldview, if you believed in anything like conscience above the state, then you must be a gospel Christian or something. Yeah, I mean, part of what the way they interpreted materialism was that uh, there can be no standard of good and evil 
uh, outside immediate results in this world, uh, which in under communism meant the good of the party. And so to appeal to just right and wrong or conscience, that just shows that you know you weren't a real materialist, you weren't a real atheist, you believed in you know something like well gospel Christianity or some equivalent. And so you know the interrogator is amazed that she would say something like that because she was a member of the Communist Party at that time. Um, and how could she suddenly appeal to conscience? We, we all know that conscience is, as they like to say, priest talk. It doesn't, you know, it, it has no real existence for a communist. Um, and that's what's so wonderful about right. that passage. And she realizes at that point that, well, gee, maybe she does believe in conscience. Well, ev- evidently she does, uh, even as she might be trying to convince herself of the same in, in that context. Yeah. Uh, in, this comes in, in your essay, Among the Disbelievers, Why Atheism Was Central to the Great Evil of the 20th Century. But you've written about similar themes elsewhere. And, and I want to ask you the, uh, the question directly. Uh, can atheism sustain over, over any long term or even over a lifetime uh, any understanding of, of what is really good, true, and beautiful? I don't know. Um... I guess it probably would depend on um, on the conditions. Um, if it were never seriously challenged by um, any deep life experience, um, which you know is can happen in the United States, um, I, I have good moral, decent um, friends at the university who are, are atheists, and they and I keep wondering. Well, yes, you're all good moral people, but if you were placed in an extreme situation, thank God you're not, would you see it differently? Would you survive the test? Um, But they managed you so far. Uh, Some of them do anyway. So it's a really difficult question. Uh, I think they don't really see the implications of their own beliefs because they're taking as normal conditions what are only conditions we happen to be living in now and are not guaranteed. Well, and it, it leads to the intellectually honest uh, assessment that there's a distinction between the question, can an atheist be a moral person? E- even, I would argue, as a theist, that, that requiring a, a, at least intellectual borrowing from theism is to know what a good person is that the atheist presumably could be. But, but the, 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 the atheism as a, uh, as a belief system, e- even in this essay that you wrote for commentary, it, it just becomes implausible that it can somehow be a worldview for a society that can remain sane and not homicidal. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't go quite that far in the essay. I, I did a little more modestly. Um, I, I set the essay up uh, to criticize the argument that the, the new atheists make that religion is, since it caught so many people have killed in the name of religion, uh, would be better off as atheists. And the point of my article is that uh, that argument fails because uh, in our time, atheists have done far worse than religions have ever done. And the usual new atheist argument is, but not because they were atheists, but that shows simply an ignorance of Soviet condition. They thought it was precisely because they were atheists. And so it's not what I'm doing. What I, the way I phrase that article is not exactly a defense right. of religious belief. It's a criticism of one criticism of religious belief, if you see what I mean. I don't, I'm a little more cautious than that. I don't no, push I, the argument I, I understand further than that. I could suspect. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I understand that. And uh, that's why I tried to say it was uh, it, it, it's it's my reading of your article that makes me uh, uh, that makes me come. It's a plausible reading. It's a plausible reading, <laughs> but it's not what it, but it, it, it reads a little bit into. Sure. You know, um, it, it makes me say things that I'm only wondering about. Um, you know, I'm wondering about the advantage. That's intellectually honest, and I, I appreciate that. And I've been like you, wondering about these things for a very long time, and uh, it just it it it, it ten, tends sometimes to wear me down in amazement that people can defend the 20th century uh, in in terms of these totalitarian regimes as if they were the aberrations of the very ideologies that they represented, and. Uh, uh, that that becomes more implausible and yet higher risk, I think, as we consider even the the contemporary moment uh, and and the climate on college and university campuses. Yeah, I just I I am dumbfounded. I always have been actually by the idea that, um, well, yes, you know, uh, socialism, Marxist regimes have failed, you know, eighteen times. But don't worry, the nineteenth time we'll get it right. Um, that can one really seriously believe that, you know, um, and yet people do, you know, uh, it's not entirely clear to me why, because again, one would think that if experience had any purchase, then, uh, that would be dead, but you know, it can die for a while, I guess, like after the collapse of the Soviet union and then get reborn. Um, it's very hard to see why. I want to take us back into Anna Karenin for just a moment sure. here. And uh, in, in the, the issues that you raise about what Tolstoy sees and wants us to see, uh, you, you actually get to the fact that Tolstoy helps us to see that we don't remember very well. Yes. Um, uh, our self-knowledge is partial and our, our memory is, is partial. And one of the ways he helps us to see this is that Anna is shown in the novel to, is it fair to say, deliberately misremember her past? Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Um, the whole concept of self-deception, um, which Tolstoy is interested in, you know, it's I read a number of books about that time by philosophers trying to understand the concept of self-deception. They didn't get very far because, well, if you, you can't just tell something you don't believe it, or you'll be aware that you're lying. And the whole point of self-deception is that you're not aware that you're lying, and yet you're lying. How is that possible? Um, and Tolstoy shows you how it is possible, um, you know, and by showing you how uh, Anna does it. And, uh, Novelists have actually been pretty good at this. You know, um, you get, go right back to, let's say, Jane Austen. You know, that's what Pride and Prejudice is about. Uh, we mislead ourselves from Pride and Prejudice. And the way we do it is step by little step. And we can only do it over a long period of time, gradually accustom ourselves to see people in a worse and worse and worse light so that every small step uh, is not particularly noticeable. And so self-deception can happen. We can arrange not to know what we know, but only by practicing a lot, it a lot and in tiny small steps over time. That picture of self-deception, you see, which you have to have a novelistic sense of, you know, of the psyche and of life yes. to see, uh, makes sense in a way that 
I've never seen a philosopher make sense of. Just just a couple of other points here, um, because there's there's so much I would want to talk about. You take us into a, a, a story uh, written by Tolstoy uh, about a painter who corrected a student's sketch. And uh, the student said, well, you only changed it a tiny bit, but it's quite a different thing. And the artist replied, art begins where that tiny bit begins. And, and then Tolstoy yeah. explains this. I, I want to read it and ask you to speak of it. That saying is strikingly true, not only of art, but of all life. One may say that true life begins where the tiny bit begins, where what seems to us minute and infinitesimally small changes occur. True life is not lived where great external changes take place, where people move about, clash, fight, and slay one another. It is lived only where these tiny, tiny, infinitesimally small changes occur, end quote. Uh, that set my mind at work for a very long time. Yeah, mine too. And, I, you know, when I teach uh, a Tolstoy novel, I always begin with that passage and that quotation because it's not only his philosophy of what life is, that it's the small events you barely notice, the tiny alterations that make a life, but it's also what he himself is really good at. He's so good He's such a great realist, you know, the point where critics typically say it's as if life were writing directly. You know, if, if nature could write directly without a person in between, it would write like Tolstoy, you know, critics have said. Uh, and the re- reason he can do that is that, you know, whereas another writer would see a change in consciousness, let's say, taking two steps in, in the course of a second, he could see it taking 10, 12 steps in the course of a second. He, he sees the tiniest yes. alterations of consciousness and he can trace it for you. And then it, it's much more believable. It's not an assertion. You've seen it happen. Um, and it seems much more realistic you know, to you and, and, and much, more, um, much more persuasive that, yes, that's the way things really, really are. But to do that, he had to see these tiny alterations. He had to accustom himself to do it. And... Well, for him, that would be what real art consists of, not be a matter of mastering some abstract technique yes. or theory. It would be about very, very close observation, um, uh, introspection, and, and of others. And I think that is really what makes um, him unique and, and the most you know, realist of the realists. And, and uh, that insight, of course, not only of art, but of all life. Uh, that, that's life, that's yeah. pretty amazing. Well, you can understand why, as a Christian theologian and reader, I have to ask you about the thunderclap uh, judgment that you make, uh, which uh, has also set me to thinking for a very long time. You write, and I quote, There are only two passages in world literature that make Christian love, love not just for one's neighbors but for one's enemies, psychologically plausible— one occurs in War and Peace, where Prince Andrei loves his enemy, Anatole Karagin, and the other in Anna Karenina, when Karenin, who has hated Anna and wished her dead, is moved to genuine Christian love and forgiveness. You then conclude, even Dostoevsky was never able to do more than assert the existence of such love. How, you ask, does Tolstoy make it truly believable? Uh it's an amazing statement. You, you you begin by saying that these are the only two passages in world literature that, in your judgment, make Christian love, meaning even love of enemy, plausible. 
Well, I meant psychologically plausible. You see how it happens. You don't have to yeah. take it on faith. You actually see it. You see that. That's what I meant by that. Right. But that's quite a statement. I, you know, even reducing this, uh, although I, I, I don't even think it's really a reduction to psychologically plausible, which is what a novelist is trying to do. Uh, you're really suggesting that no one other than Tolstoy gets it right. Uh, I'm not. I'm not arguing here with you. I'm just kind of amazed, uh, but I'm also a bit perplexed as to how to answer your judgment. Uh, and and th- those two particular illustrations you give from War and Peace and Anna Karenina uh, are indeed uh, pictures of what a Christian would have to call a, a conversion. Yeah. And no, no question about it. And I mean, part of what they they share is that the person who undergoes that conversion has not been looking for it. Um, he shows how it happens. Uh, you can't just decide, well, I'm going to experience Christian love and then do it. It 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 can't happen that way. Um, and yet it can happen. Um, and it, and one of the ways he makes it possible, you know, is by tracing that you know the tiny, tiny alterations of consciousness. Um, I know in the in the Anna Karenina case, it's it, you must see fifty or a hundred or more little steps, um, and each one is plausible. And then, since you grant each little step. You have to grant the outcome, which is simply the last little step. Right? Um, you'd have to be able to see consciousness in such amazing detail of tiny alterations of movement to do that. That um, I think only Tolstoy has seen consciousness that that closely. Say Dostoevsky would have loved to have done that. And, you know, he was you know quite devout and wanted to you know show, and, and but he could show. You know, people who've reached the um, the state of Christian love, but he couldn't show getting there. He kept trying, and he kept feeling it wasn't plausible. That he the readers would find it just you know asserted by him, and he wanted to make them feel it. And then you can imagine his own feeling when he saw Tolstoy do it. You know, who you know who you know he with some jealousy. Nevertheless, he wound up seeing as you know the greatest writer in the history of the world, you know, in part for that very reason. In your uh, conclusion, the 163 Tolstoyan conclusions, we obviously can't go through them all, but in, in 154 you write, no other art form or discipline describes moral situations as well as individual people with the richness and complexity of the great realist novels. And my guess is that's that's why you're classroom at Northwestern fills up with hundreds of students a year. You you must demonstrate that statement to be true by the time students sit in your classroom. Yeah, I really try. And, you know, it's the way most students have been taught, you know, literature beforehand, this comes as a revelation, you know, to them. Because, you know, the typical way they're taught in, you know, in high school or some other college classes is you know, either mechanical, let's find another symbol, and they learn how to find symbols, um, which doesn't really teach them anything. Um, or, you know, let's judge the person based on our, con- you know, contemporary political social beliefs and, you know, see how well they measure up to us, which means, of course, you can't learn anything because you assume that what you already believe is true. 
so in either way, literature becomes, you know, it's kind of pointless to read it. Uh, you might as well just read a summary of it. But what I try to get them to do is see, no, there really is profound wisdom here, and you can only get the wisdom by experiencing it. Uh, you've got to go through those tiny alterations of your own consciousness. Um, and I, you know, I think I persuade some of them of that. Well, I think you have demonstrated that. And, and as I read your works, uh, your essays, your books, as I enjoy this conversation, I just have to tell you, it makes me think that uh, uh, part of me wants to go back as an undergraduate at Northwestern University uh, just to enroll in your courses and uh, to hear you teach. And I say That's that so with respect. That's so kind of you to say. Yeah. But you're always welcome to come. Well, that, that, that is very, very kind. And I want to thank you for this conversation today, Professor. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Oh, thank you. Well, that conversation with Professor Morrison, I think, helps us to understand why that classroom, that massive classroom at Northwestern University, is so regularly packed with undergraduate students looking not only to know more about Russian literature, but more urgently to know more about life, including their own lives, to know more about love and to distinguish real love from its alternatives. To understand, just as Professor Morrison makes very clear, that we learn from great writers like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy what it means to see what would otherwise be missed, to look for prosaic in life, rather than trying to live a life that is at the extremes. And when you look at life this way, and you look at literature with these eyes, you begin to see, especially in these great works of the Russian novelists, an understanding of life that is so lacking, not only amongst other writers, but amongst so many modern people, wherever they may be found, whatever their vocation or station in life. The reality is that Professor Morrison becomes very convincing in arguing for why these great realist novelists in Russia— help us to understand so much of life that seems to be missing amongst others. A part of this, as he explains, is the history of Russia itself. A part of it also has to be, and this also becomes very clear in Professor Morrison's writings, that these great Russian novelists, regardless of their own individual spiritual and theological understanding, were writing out of a massive deposit of Christian intuition, a Christian understanding of life, a Christian understanding of history, a theistic worldview that is behind and underneath everything that they write. And of course, when it comes to Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, you're writing about more than a kind of theology in the abstract. And when it comes to Tolstoy in particular, you are looking at hundreds and hundreds of pages written by, as Professor Morrison clearly believes, the greatest writer of recent times, you're looking at someone who is grappling with these questions and unfolding stories, and he draws us in. He makes us want to see not only what he sees, but what we might otherwise not see. I found one of the most satisfying portions of this conversation to be where Professor Morrison more or less turns modern popular interpretations of a story like Anna Karenina upside down where he points out that so many in the modern world not only want to read Anna, the tragic adulteress, as a romantic heroine, but it's that they not only read the story that way, but that they want to read the story that way. The reason why they want to read the story that way is, if anything, far more interesting than the story of the fact that they do. 
And when we come to understand what that tells us, not only about the modern world and not only about those who tend to think that way and read the story that way, it helps us to understand the myriad temptations to see life, as Tolstoy warned, as if only from the treetops. At several points in today's conversation, I pointed to those 163 Tolstoyan conclusions at the end of Professor Morrison's book on Anna Karenina. Every one of the 163 is worthy of attention. But in these conclusions, number 124, he writes, If one is interested in the truth, one seeks, not avoids, authentic ideas that contradict one's own. End quote. That has to be also not only a part of Professor Morrison's intellectual honesty, his way of reading life and literature, it has to explain something of why there is such power in his teaching that draws so many young people into that classroom. He brings these conclusions to an end with a final two. 162, we must cast away the telescope and learn to see the world of tiny alterations right before our eyes. He argues that this is exactly what novels like Anna Karenina and War and Peace help us to do. And he makes very clear that if we fail to do that, we're actually missing life where it is lived out at the most important level in the most important way. But his final conclusion is this, to understand life more deeply, we must learn to see more wisely. It is hard to imagine better words to end a conversation like this than those. To understand life more deeply, we must learn to see more wisely. Again, many thanks to my guest, Professor Gary Saul Morrison, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find over 100 more of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.